In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, you, you've probably seen Christmas story, a Christmas story about Ralphie, and you know that Ralphie is all about trying to get that Red Rider BB gun, but you probably may have forgotten that there's actually a subtext to that whole film. I know, subtext in that film, really? Um, there's a subtext, and it's about how Ralphie deals with people who don't like him. And there's the bully in town, Scott Farkas, who has his own little toady. And uh, several instances in which there's a confrontation, it finally comes to a head. That's where we stop, right? Because, yeah, because by the end of it, there's, there's snot and blood and, 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 and cussing like Yosemite Sam. Um, uh, but, and some of you right now are triggered because uh, that's a moment from your childhood. Uh, there, maybe you were the bully. Um, in any case, that's the experience that when you're a kid and, and in other times, at every era and every place and every culture, there are, there are those who are bullied and there are those who are scorned, who are ridiculed and... Uh, that's what it's like. Now, that's all cute, and we laugh, and that was my point. But, um, beloved, when it comes to believing in God, uh, there's a whole other order of ridicule to which you make yourself prone uh, simply by believing. Christopher Hitchens was one of those known as the new atheists. He kind of emerged um, with great popularity coming out of 9-11, but he was always a trenchant, incisive, perceptive analyst of culture and of history. But he was also one of the most scathing critics of religion. Uh, he was uh, unambiguous in that. And I, I want you to experience a little of Christopher Hitchens for a moment, not by listening to him um, live, but I'm going to read a quote to you. He was, he, he was in a debate uh, many years ago, and the debate was entitled Resolved. Uh, freedom of speech should include freedom to hate. <laughs> Not a title you're going to hear these days, is it? Um, but in the midst of that debate, uh, this, is what, these are, this is one of the things that he said, and I just want you to not only hear it, but to feel it. Now, I am absolutely convinced that the main source of hatred in the world is religion and organized religion. Absolutely convinced of that. And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule, hatred, and contempt. And I claim that right. So when I say, as the subtitle of my book, that I think religion poisons everything, I'm not just doing what publishers like and coming up with a provocative subtitle. I mean to say it infects us in our most basic integrity. 
It says we can't be moral without Big Brother, without a totalitarian permission. It means we can't be good to one another without this. We must be afraid. We must also be forced to love someone whom we fear. The essence of sadomasochism, the essence of abjection, the essence of master-slave relationship, and that knows that death is coming and can't wait to bring it on. I say that is evil, and though I do some nights stay home, I enjoy more the nights when I go out and fight against this ultimate wickedness and ultimate stupidity. Anybody need a shower? (laughs) Unambiguous, cutting, uh, disparaging. And it's not like he has no basis for thinking some of those thoughts. It's not like those who claim a religious heritage haven't in some ways acted in fiendish ways. It's not untrue that the church across its history has acted in ways in which you think, I want to be associated with them? But in that moment, what you have is scorn. Pure, unadulterated scorn and contempt. And I I bring him up just to say, none of us should be surprised or shocked at contempt. Now, maybe none of you have experienced that kind of hatred or vitriol come your way but it's there and if it comes what do you do andrew for the last two weeks has admirably prepared us to walk through a journey of psalms called the songs of ascent between psalms 120 and psalm 134 they were what pilgrims would sing to each other as they would march up to Jerusalem at one of the three festivals of the year. This day, if you're a Benedictine monk, you read these every day. If you're an observant Jew, you recite them every Saturday. So they're not just at the back of the book because they're the stuff that we want to leave to the end because we're bored with the Psalms. They're pivotal. And you may wonder, why, why pick these psalms this summer? I'll tell you why. Because remember a few weeks ago when I quoted that feeling that many of us are having that we didn't have a word for and somebody named Adam Grant suggested that the word should be languishing? What's the way out of our pit? Our argument through this series is that the way out is the way up. That whatever you might want to do to get out of your funk, whether it's start a hobby, turn off your phone, talk to an actual person, go for a run, all of those things are great. And I encourage them. I need them. But the way out is going to be the way up, and it's going to be into worship. And I fail at that often. What does it mean to worship? And especially, how do you ascend in worship when ridicule is descending upon your soul? That's what we want to talk about today. That's the title of the sermon. There will be ridicule. And so we want to talk about two things. The problem of ridicule and the promise, which is really a project of relief. The problem of ridicule and the promise, which is the project of relief. You're actually going to hear the sermon text live today from none other than Chris Dotson. So I wonder if you might stand to hear this very brief psalm. Our central text for today is found in Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's it. Thanks, Chris. As with every one of these psalms, uh, the best we can do is speculate about the setting that gave rise to it. But just of what you heard there in verses 3 and 4, I think you could deduce that what Israel is feeling in that moment is kind of feeling like being on the business end of Christopher Hitchens. That there is contempt being poured out upon them. And so you heard there in verses 3 and 4, have mercy upon us. We've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Contempt is more than criticism. Contempt is nothing so pedestrian as correction. It has an interest in reducing you to ash. And all you got to do is look through the pages of even the Old Testament. Noah builds his ark, and they look at him, and they go, what are you, you're a fool. David comes out to Goliath in, in nothing with a slingshot, and, and Goliath says, what, what you, you come to me as a dog? What do you think, am I a dog, and you come to me with a stick? Nehemiah, in, in Nehemiah chapter 4, he is... Uh, their commission to help oversee the rebuilding of the temple after Israel has returned from exile and up walks this Samaritan official named Sanballat and he's got his own toady named Tobias and there in Nehemiah 4 it says, do I have that slide? Yes. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then, and then Tobias comes along and he says, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will he break down their stone wall? That's contempt. That's contempt. And when Job, and Job in his own moment, in his own sorrow, he says this, I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, I'm a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. That's contempt. That's malice. It's meant to take the wind out of your sails. It's meant to bury you. And when I've just listened to this sermon, or this, this psalm over the last few weeks, and I've meditated upon it, I've realized that there are, there are three things true, three things about the problem of ridicule. And, and the first is this. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. I've just read you four different passages from the Old Testament. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 123 are all about contempt. It's not rare. It is common. And history and maybe perhaps your own experience confirm it. Perhaps not as floridly or as evocatively as those passages that you just heard, but it comes. You know, the season that we've been in in the last 15 months, you can debate with me or others whether it's unique. But the, the, the truth of the matter is it sure feels like that ridicule is in the air and it is in the water that we're drinking. 
And anytime somebody even tries to start an argument about ideas, how quickly does it devolve into ridicule? It's just kind of our default thing. I'll just go after you, and I'll make you feel like a fool. When you mention belief in God, you will get everything from eye-rolling to smirking that you believe in something equivalent to a spaghetti monster um, to being labeled as benighted and bigoted and bullying. That's the experience. Students, if you're here, if it hasn't happened yet, it will. I know a lot of our youth are in the youth room today. But it's just not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And that's because it is inevitable. That's the first thing I learned about the problem of, of ridicule. The second is this. Um, it's punishing. It's not just words coming at you. Twice you hear the psalmist say, we have had more than enough of this. It, it literally, in the original languages, we have had a bellyful. This is a gut bomb of ridicule and contempt that we are receiving. And it is Israel in a full Nelson yelling, uncle, Uncle, man. Why is it punishing? Because those who tend to hold forth with contempt are the same people who tend to want to heap it on. There's a certain delicious loveliness that you feel when you can exercise contempt upon somebody else. It feeds itself. I'm not sure if I like heaping contempt on you. Oh yeah, you you like that. It's punishing because those who do it like to do it. And it's also punishing because... Their aim is not out to critique, it's out to eviscerate you. The the psalmist says, our soul has had enough of this. The contempt is not coming simply for something that you you believe, it's it's, it's reaching for your inmost places. Um, When when Jesus kind of, when the penny dropped for me in college and Jesus becomes kind of real to me, I... I remember the first instance of people ridiculing me for that belief. I remember the sense of fear and confusion and disorientation and disillusion. I remember that. It is punishing. It's not just coming against a set of ideas. It's a coming about how you think about yourself. It's punishing. And, and sometimes um, you're not sure uh, you know, whether what's worse, the, the ridicule itself or what appears to be God's indifference to your experience of it. It's punishing. It's, it's inevitable. It's punishing, but, but also a third thing. It forces a crisis. And by that I mean every time it comes your way, um, you're presented with a choice. How shall I respond? I mean, the psalmist here, it, 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 as you hear in other places in the psalms, um, the psalmist is saying to himself, if not to the Lord, why is it that I'm... I'm trying to do your will, and I'm trying to do it humbly, but everybody else that is essentially willing to spit in your face, Lord, why are they sitting pretty? And in a moment like that, you're forced with a crisis, and you have options. What are your options when contempt comes your way? One is to retreat. Um, The ridicule comes. It feels too much to bear. You want to cut your losses. You want to run from the field. You don't discard what you hold to. You're not giving up on that, but um, you let it kind of go underground. You, you kind of prefer for it just to be concealed, to never see the light of day, and it still serves you, 
but you will never risk a collision with anyone or anything else over it. It, it is like a treasure that you put in a safe. And you can do that. And I get that. I've done that. Um, some of you may have read a, a really pointed article this week by a Nigerian author whose name is, um, I love the name just to say it, Chimamanda Adichie. And, and when we see Scott Rail again, I'll make sure I did it right. Um, but uh, Chimamanda wrote in a very different setting on a very different topic, but um, she, she took note of how many young people today are dealing with ridicule, either in, in the way they will use it or the measures that they will take to avoid ridicule at all costs. And after writing a very long essay, she, she summarized what she's learned from this. She says, I've spoken to young people who tell me they are terrified to tweet anything, that they read and reread their tweets because they fear they will be attacked by their own. The assumption of good faith is dead. What matters is not goodness, but the appearance of goodness. We are no longer human beings. We are now angels jostling to out-angel one another. God help us, it's obscene. You can retreat when contempt comes. It's an option. Um, it's not your only option, though. And there are others that take a very different tack. Um, you can say, retreat, no way, man, I'm going to take revenge. Uh, you can go full Ralphie on somebody, right? Um, you, you can want blood or, or, or something shortly thereof, just, the, just short thereof. You, you can do whatever you want. You, you want from them what they wanted from you. You can take revenge. You can go after them. You can go after them. You can act in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with love. And in, and, in, and in doing so, in going after revenge, you have played into their hand. Because what does somebody that exercises contempt on you for, what are they out to get in you to betray what you have conviction for? And if you can get so unhinged that you go after them and think of them as pond scum rather than as even created in the image of God, then you'll take revenge and, uh, and then the terrorists have won. You can retreat, you can take revenge, um, but you can also relent. And I'll say that what I mean by that is um, when, when contempt comes, there's all sorts of emotions that you feel and all sorts of thoughts that you have, and, and you've got to go somewhere with that emotion. And, and there are moments in which you may feel like you've got nowhere to go with them, and you've got no resources uh, to appeal to, and no uh, defenses against that. And in that moment, you are just maybe so tired and weary that you're ready, like, I'm done. You know, given the unpopularity of Jesus in many circles, uh, given the heinous ways in which the church has acted across history, there may come a point where you just say, mm, um, I'm out. I'm going to relent. And that's where it goes. That's the problem of ridicule. It comes in many forms. It's inevitable, it's punishing, and it forces you with a crisis. But the psalmist does none of those responses. Uh, retreat, revenge, relent. He, he takes a different way. What is that way? Well, this is where we get to the second half of the sermon. We've talked about the 
problem of ridicule, but now what's the promise of relief, which actually becomes our project? It's two things, and they're both found in these really lovely metaphorical phrases in, in the section. Um, lift up and look to. What does he say there in, in verse 1? To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. The way you and I respond to contempt is to begin, first of all, with belief about something about God. You, you have to back up a little minute, and before you, you take on any of the particular arguments, you have to back up and talk about belief about God. And, and this should sound familiar because we heard in Psalm 121, I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. I'm still, I still have treats for those of you that want to recite that. You have to start with something that you believe about God. You have to start by humbling yourself before him. How many times did I walk into Tom Westbrook's office with my sophomore questions about, you know, this doesn't make sense at all, and I'm not sure if I get this, and, you know, what about this? And, and at first he would look at me like, oh, oh, really? And how long have you thought about this? What, 10 minutes? Get out of my office. Come back and think about it a little bit more, and then we'll have an intelligent conversation about your questions. He wasn't dismissing me. He wasn't telling me that I was silly for thinking those things. He just said, use your mind that the Lord gave you. And then when I thought about it, then we would talk about it. And in other moments where I was just like tearing my hair out and going, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what to do and I don't even know how to talk to God. And I remember distinctly one time he got up from his desk and he walked out of the office and he says, follow me. And we walked down to the chapel in this University Baptist Church in Austin, Texas and he pulls out a kneeler. Remember kneelers? Why don't we have kneelers? He pulls out a kneeler and he kneels and he says, you too. And we both kneel together and he just said, now pray. And I, I stumbled, I stammered, that's what we do. You, you lift up your eyes to the Lord by, by humbling yourself enough to say, maybe, maybe I'm not the first person that's ever encountered this kind of contempt. Maybe I'm not the first person that's ever heard this argument against these things. Maybe, maybe the Lord is actually bigger than this. And, and why am I so interested in having an answer right now? One of the best things that Tom Westbrook ever told me was, set aside your first emotional response. Come back to whatever you're dealing with later. You know, it, it'll, it'll, it's not going away. Just come back a little bit. Your emotions right now have everything to do with why you can't respond properly. God is bigger than this. He is not overwhelmed by this. He is not intimidated by this. Lift up your eyes, man. Humble yourself before him. He is, he is not burdened by this. He is, look, there's a wonderful Mary Oliver poem that, I, that I, somebody introduced me to recently that um, she, she references the moment when the queen of Sheba comes to visit the temple that Solomon has built. And, and she says this. I think I have it up here, yeah. Why do people keep asking to see God's identity papers when the darkness opens, opening into the morning is more than enough Certainly any god might turn away in disgust. Think of Sheba approaching the kingdom of Solomon. Do you think she had to ask, is this the place? <laughs> Look, the scope and size and immensity and remarkableness of the universe is not proof of the existence of God. Can you fault anybody from making that deduction, though? 
Is this the place? Did you do this? Lift up your eyes. Humble yourself. He's not, it's not too big for him. He is, he's not burdened by it. He is, he is not broken by it. And he's also not unresponsive. And that's the second part of the, the promise. Not only uh, uh, do we, we lift up our eyes to him in, in the, and humble ourselves before him, but we also have to remember that he is responsive to us in our need. And therefore, that's what you heard there. The, the most evocative part of the psalm is what you hear in verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. What do servants and, and, and maidservants do? Their eyes are always fixed upon their, their master and their mistresses, anticipating their every mood move, uh, trying to figure out what they need at the next moment. That's what, that's what um, you know, servants did. That's what they do. But in this moment, it is not the servant that is waiting to act on behalf of the master. It is the servant waiting for the master to act on behalf of them. I want to show you this really sweet and short moment from early in Downton Abbey which, you know, takes place early part of the, se- the series. It takes place during World War I. And uh, it talks about how the, the Grantham family becomes involved in the war effort. And in this moment, uh, Lord Grantham is hosting a benefit concert on behalf of the war effort. Now, uh, there are many uh, military-aged men who are his servants, who are still working there, still working for him during World War I. And in this moment, a certain moment uh, unfolds that actually happens during most wars. What is it? A white feather, of course. Coward. Stop this at once. This is neither the time nor the place. These people should be aware that there are cowards among them. Will you please leave? You are the cowards here, not they! Leader, will you continue? The servants serve at the pleasure of their laster. There are other things they could be doing and scorn and contempt are heaped upon them for their cowardice. A white feather would be a, would be a metaphor for you're being a coward if, I, if someone hands you a white feather. And, and, and what happens? The Lord just doesn't sort of let them take it on the chin. He stands up and defends them. That's what the psalmist believes about the Lord. That as those who would serve him, who would serve him for his good, that he will come to their defense in the midst of contempt that might be heaped upon them from whatever quarter it comes, no matter even how credible it might seem. Friends, I think what this is out to tell us is that ridicule will come, and therefore to look to the Lord invites us to a certain measure of applications, and here's where I land the plane. What does it mean to look to him? It's three things. Huddle up, cry out, take heart. Huddle up, cry out, take heart. Huddle up. What? Remember, these songs of ascent, they they weren't written so that you and I would mainly sit in a quiet room and reflect upon them as 
beneficial as that might be, these were songs meant to be sung with others who had a common experience, to be sung with one another, to bind us together in solidarity with that. Friends, I, you, I know what it was like to walk the, 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 the streets of the University of Texas at Austin and feel like I was being ridiculed. I had to talk to somebody about it. Um, very different setting. Jill Abramson was once the, uh, the editor of the New York Times, and she woke up one morning and discovered that an article had been written about her scorning her leadership of what she had done. And she immediately calls her friend and mentor, her, her journalistic father, Arthur Sulzberger, and just sort of, you know, lets him know what she's feeling. And he goes, you know, uh, Jill, it's not your fault. It's just your turn. She huddles up with the people that she knows who's had the same experience that she's had, and she's saying, i, I got to get this out. Friends, when you, contempt or ridicule comes your way, you gotta, you got to huddle up. We get it. Let's talk about it. You huddle up, and at the same time, just like Jill does, just like I have done, is, is you got to cry out. Mercy, Lord, the psalmist says. I need your mercy, and I will, I will keep crying until mercy comes upon us. Contempt hurts. It's meant to. Those who offer contempt are really not out to correct you. They're out to bury you. And so the psalmist is in no way saying, neither in this psalm nor in the other psalm, oh, just suck it up. He's not calling you to be a stoic. He's saying you should cry out because you'll need to. You've got to take that emotion somewhere. You could do a lot worse than take it unto the Lord. What does Nehemiah say there after Sanballat and his little toady Tobias have spoken to him? He says, hear our God for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Don't cover their guilt. Let not there be sin blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of their builders. That's not revenge. That's crying out to the Lord saying, hey, you know what? A little help? You huddle up. You cry out. You also take heart because not only does Nehemiah demonstrate what it means to cry out. There's somebody else that you know who demonstrates that too, but in a different, very different way, and his name is Jesus. And when the, the ultimate demonstration of scorn had been heaped upon him, he cried out, forgive them. You don't, they don't know what they're doing. You and I have to take heart that there is one who is very familiar with contempt. In in defending people who are being held in contempt, in defending the prostitute who is anointing his feet with oil and everybody's looking at her like she's subhuman, he knows how to defend her. He knows how to speak and write parables, how an older son will have contempt for the younger son that went out and squandered their father's collective inheritance. Jesus knows how to tell a story about how contempt needs to be undermined. He's familiar with how to defend people against contempt, but he also knows how to endure it himself. Ridicule doesn't even approximate what he felt. By, by what he did and what he accomplished, through ridicule, life is different. The pain is hurt. Ridicule does hurt, but it just feels differently when you know that what he has done for you on behalf of you through the experience of his own ridicule is something that can never be taken from you. And therefore, needing to be right or needing their approval or needing to be... All of that, that just never doesn't seem as important as it once did because you know you have his affections. 
Alan Jacobs, waxing on something that, um, that another author had written, he says this, is Christianity declining where you are? Or is it rather growing in power and influence? Is persecution coming for you? Or is cultural success around the corner? None of it matters. Our calling is precisely the same in what we call times of ease and what we call times of struggle. And the good news is always news and it's always good. Don't bother being an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You don't have to put on a sunny face and you don't have to slink into the ditch. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So let me end this way. Near the end of his life, Christopher Hitchens, remember him? He'd spent a little time with Christians. But he went on a radio program with a, um, an interviewer who, who identified as a Christian, but who took all the stories about miracles and, and resurrection as metaphors. So it was a, a belief in Jesus more of as a, an ethical model than as anything really supernatural and, and she asked him uh, what he thought of that version of Christianity. And here's what he says to her on a show. Remember the guy that, you know, wanted to rip us a new one there at the front end of the sermon? I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and then he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> what? If it's not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then the Christians are, of all people, the most unhappy. If none of that's true, and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. I'm sorry. Fundamentalist simply means that those who think that the Bible is a serious book and should be taken seriously. And then he says this, I've discovered that the so-called Christian right is much less monolithic and very much more polite and hospitable than I would have once thought or than most liberals believe. I, I'm not here to put, pit conservatives against liberals. That's not my thing. I don't do that, and I don't need to. Jesus is neither, and both. Oh, there's a sermon. <laughs> but apparently that man had spent enough time with Christians who when he would heap contempt upon them, acted differently. Apparently they humbled themselves enough to lift their eyes up to the Lord who is maker of heaven and earth, and apparently they would look to the Lord the, to the, 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 the eyes of them were on the hand of the Lord to rescue them in the midst of their contempt. And, and rather than retreat, relent, or take revenge, they, they loved him, apparently. Beloved, if, if somebody like him can be softened by the love of those who have huddled up, cried out, and taken heart, then... Imagine what more he can do with us whose hearts are perhaps that much softer to the Lord. That's why we're coming to the table. Because that's where contempt was in the first act. And how he bore it and what he accomplished by it is why we've gathered to worship this day. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.